Our God and Father, we adore you as we just sang. We thank you for the written revelation of your person and your plan. Your plan for your people, your plan of redemption. We ask that you would help your words not to fall on dead ears or calloused hearts this morning. We ask you to set aside the uh, cares and concerns that we came in with. We thank you for the way that you have brought us here for this particular time of study of your word and ask that you would take the word of God and plant it deep in our souls that we would render you holy obedience. Thank you for this privilege. In the precious name of Jesus, we praise you. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. As we look at a portrait of godly and healthy women, part two of our little mini-series on the character of healthy churches. I trust, especially after mentioning reasons last week for studying the pastoral epistles, that you recognize the absolute necessity of Scripture in directing our understanding of the church, for directing our understanding of biblical ministry, for directing our understanding of life in the church and life in the home according to true godliness. The duty of sound doctrine manifests itself in the health of individuals, and it aids in the gospel-powered witness of the church before an onlooking world. In particular, as mentioned in the first group of people of what godliness looks like, the Apostle Paul addressed older men last week. What does the gospel look like as it's transforming the saints of God from one level of glory to another, it looks like men who are temperate, who are sober, clear-headed, well-ordered in their priorities, and that they are not only temperate, but they are also, number two, dignified. And he said that they are to be sensible, to say it another way, to, uh, these men are self-controlled. And the fourth characteristic of godly older men that the Apostle Paul set before our eyes and our hearts that we would attain to in our healthy doctrine in practice is that these men fourthly be sound. Sound in three ways, that they are, they're healthy in faith, that they've got growing health in their walk with Christ, growing health in love, pursuing more self-giving love for God and their neighbor, and that they be sound in perseverance, that they are the models, the bastions in the local church of pursuing confident trust in awaiting the Lord's return in faithfulness and growing old gracefully. Men, I asked you a question last week, and I'll ask you again as we uh, dive into this next study. Do these four words characterize and describe you? If not, let's extill still more in these graces. So the Apostle Paul to Titus last week addressed in partial degree the necessity for godly male leadership to the health of the church. 
The Bible also has a lot to say about a significant, oft controversial, and even emotionally charged issue, and that issue would be women's role in the church and the home. Could I submit to you that no biblical standard has been more viciously attacked, especially in our day, than the God-ordained role of women in society? In a different passage of Scripture than what we're studying this morning, bring to the text this morning what you've already learned in your studies of the New Testament of what godly womanhood looks like. And one of those passages was in, in 2 Peter 3. Don't, don't turn there. Listen to the Word. Peter exhorts wives in 1 Peter 3 to be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the work, the, the word, excuse me. If you're married to an unbeliever, dear sister, that they might be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Dear sister in Christ, is that what your life looks like? You might be beautiful on the outside. Are you beautiful in the inner man, the inner woman? Read with me in our text this morning back in Titus. Titus chapter 2, let's read the first five verses. In contrast to the false teachers that had been exposed in the last several verses of the previous chapter, in contrast to false teachers and false unrighteous living, you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Beloved, would you notice with me this morning the qualities of godliness which make women beautiful from the inside out? Two groups of women are addressed in these three verses. The older women and younger women. Older women in verse number 3 are addressed. This is just a continuation on the message Paul has for senior citizens. He started with the old gentlemen and these now the older ladies in our midst. That's why he uses that term likewise. Likewise, in the same manner in which he just described older men. So he gave four characteristics of older men And with those four are four graces for the women who would be somewhere around 60 with no more child-rearing responsibilities. If you wanted to put a footnote here of 1 Timothy 5 verses 3 through 10 where 
Paul speaks to Timothy in regards to qualifications of widows, older women in our midst. What qualifies you to be on the widow's role of the church? And he uses several verses to discuss what these older women look like. And even though there are four graces for the older women here in parallel to the old, older men, it's not an issue of fours, but in the same manner that the gospel has implications for men, it's got a lot of implications for older women as well. They too must behave reverently in a way suitable to sound doctrine. In a similar way that old, the older men might have feelings of uselessness, loneliness, self-pity, and some of the things we'd mentioned as a possibility last week, that's not exclusive to men. Older women could feel those same inhibitions in the, the latter years of life. And so they are to focus on personal godliness, being worthy of respect, and play an essential role in the lives of younger women in the church. Notice the standard. He says here in verse 3, older women likewise, in the same manner of which he had just addressed the older men, are to be reverent in their behavior. The behavior of the proper belief, doctrine does have duty in our practice. It designates that which is befitting a holy person. This word reverent has an interesting range of meaning. Uh, it, was, it, it was a fun little side study this week. Several make the connect, connection of this term to being temple-like. That is the word reverent, temple-like. Engage in a sacred duty. In essence, a prophetess. Not like in what, what takes place in the descriptions in uh, uh, charismatic movements today, but what he's trying to convey here is a reverent, holy, befitting of God outlook on life. Women, women are to take serious their spiritual acts of service, carrying out daily life with the demeanor as if they were a priestess in the temple. It describes an outer presentation and actions arising out of the correct state of mind and way of thinking. So in contrast to a plethora of women's libbers and egalitarian people who think that uh, what he can do, I can do better, as the old song goes, yes he can, no I can't, and I was trying to find out where that came from because I couldn't remember this week. But in contrast to that outlook... Women are to have a vis- visibly promote godliness. That should be the focus of what gathers their attention. Pleasure in God, not pleasure in the world. Seeing every part of daily duty as holy before the Lord. The mature Christian woman should always exhibit in her manner a recognition of the sacredness of every aspect of life to the child of God. Everything she does. Now these next two words, these qualifications, these character traits posed real possibility for women whose families were grown. They may have had too much idle time on their hands, unless you are disciplined to use time wisely, you can fritter it away. Notice 
what is said of them by negation. They are not to be malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine. Let's look at that first phrase, not malicious gossips. This term is used 34 times in the New Testament, not to describe humans, but this term is used 34 times to describe Satan himself, the slanderer, the arch-slanderer of God. Those who cannot control their tongues and speak lies and falsely accuse and spread malicious gossip, Paul is basically saying here, you do the work of Satan himself. You cannot slander and serve God at the same time. Those are competing realities. Those who cannot do... uh, The old Greek scholar Robertson, and I mention him by name so that uh, you wouldn't think that this is something that Parker postulated uh, in the backyard this week. He suggests uh, that a great translation here would be she-devils. When you are engaging in slander, you are being a she-devil. I think that you acknowledge the danger of unguarded speech by women with too much time on their hands. To put another scholar on the hotline, the old French theologian John Calvin stated the danger in severe words when he said, talkativeness is a disease of women and it is increased by old age. Now, I've done a lot of reading of Calvin and Calvin was no chauvinist and don't even accuse Paul of being a chauvinist. Generally, that's a principle of all of human beings, whether you're a woman or a man. In a multitude of words, we are told by the writer of Proverbs, what? Sin is not lacking, but he who learns to restrain his lips is wise. You talk too much, you're eventually going to sin, and sometimes it doesn't take too long. It might be one word or even the thought that precedes the word, and you're in sin. James tells us that this tongue of ours is set on fire by hell itself. So, going back to Paul's word here of Satan the slanderer, do not be guilty of being a malicious gossip. When you falsely accuse and you slander, you're operating in His realm, advancing His cause, not God's. Second characteristic, which you should not be characterized by if you profess Christ, is that you not be enslaved to much wine. You might be scratching your head here wondering, what's the point of this? It might seem like a a rudimentary principle, an inappropriate warning. We could just move right on. I don't have any problem in this area at all. Could I cause you to remember a couple of biblical examples? We are told at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, that the saints of God were guilty of drunkenness at the Lord's table. Don't brush this this admonition aside too quickly. You know, this must have been a problem not just at Corinth, but at Crete as well. That is why this specific admonition here. Titus, remember what was uh, told back in chapter 1 and verse 12? One of their own, one of the Cretans themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons. Think about what this might look like in your home. Constant, suppose you deal with the same sin that uh, uh, Cretans were uh, guilty of. Suppose uh, you're trying to lose weight and you've got constant access to food and drink in the house. That can be troublesome if you're trying. You, know, you got all your comfort foods when I want the, well, I'm, I was going to list some. Never mind, I'll get in too much trouble. Your comfort foods, you, bring, you, buy the, you, you, you buy it at the store and you put it there just in case you need it at midnight some night. You will partake in a moment of weakness. I can't have the stuff in the house, stuff that I am so quickly given over to. I think the theological practice and principle of the matter, I heard with my kids, we were looking at, watching an old 80s uh, movie last week, we were doing the, uh, what is it, uh, car- uh, the, karate, not karate, the Karate Kid Marathon, and uh, Mr. Miyagi, as he is teaching Daniel's son karate, teaches one principle of karate, the best principle is the best block is what? No be there, don't be there. If you've got an area, a pothole of temptation that trips you up, go a different way. Staff for your weaknesses if you want to overcome. Don't even have it available. Plan life around weaknesses and stresses of life. The Apostle Paul knew this well. He, he writes in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful to me. It's not a sin issue. But not all things are profitable. And he says, here is my conviction. I will not be mastered by anything. Whether it be the alcohol that's mentioned here or anything else. I'm going to buffet my body, not buffet my body. Lest people would see enslavement characteristics in my life. So Paul writes to Titus. And he gives two negatives that cannot characterize godliness in the lives of older women. Don't be malicious gossips and don't be enslaved to too much wine. And after stating two negatives, notice the positive that he gives here. He says, these things cannot, cannot be what you're about, but here's what you are about. Teaching what is good. Teaching what is good. Titus was to instruct women how to instruct women. What a great principle. We're, we're constantly, you know, in the biblical counsel movement, we're constantly telling men, counsel men. Train women to counsel women so that you can't be accused of anything else in the counseling room. Great principle. Titus, train up women to train up women, to multiply the ministry. Develop a ministry of teaching, of schooling, and training younger women what is good. And as we look at the horizon of the local church throughout our day and age, what is one of the greatest things lacking, that is the older teaching the younger, which was taught to Titus way back then. He was to train female teachers. Train them in things that please God, particularly Verses 4 and 5, this is what is good. Passing on that which is virtuous and right and good to a younger generation. 
Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, after citing Proverbs 31 verses 1 and 26, listen to what he said. He said, the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy his mother taught him, such a woman as prays, she openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Teachers of kindness are opposed to teachers of things corrupt. You notice the contrast as he's reflecting on, on the false teachers in, at the end of chapter 1 and the true teachers in chapter 2. Teachers of kindness, he said, are, are opposed to teachers of things corrupt or to what is trifling and vain, of no good use or tendency, old wives' fables or superstitious sayings and observances in opposition to these their business is, and they may call on to it to be teachers of good things, unquote. Older lady, older sister in Christ, do not let it be said of you that you are controlled by wine, but let it be said of you you're controlled by the Spirit of God. As you've broken ranks with the common habits and values that the world has, and live a life of restraint and honor and usefulness, not participating in the crowd's gossip, their judgment or passing on the latest bit of babble, but modeling propriety and respect for others. Older women, be reverent, which is to say you're not malicious gossips, you're not enslaved to too much wine, you're teaching what is good, And as we get into verses 4 and 5, you'll notice that there are a number of admonitions to the younger women, but don't lose the fact here. He has not changed his attention. It doesn't mean that these are just for the younger women, because you must be a model of what you are teaching lest you be a hypocrite, right? Jesus was teaching in Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, that a student is not above his teacher. So he hasn't switched gears here. He hasn't lost focus. When he starts zeroing in on the younger women, he's still got his eye to the older women here. So though the the grouping has changed a bit from the older to the younger... These older are to have examples of godliness, giving them the right and the credibility to instruct. So the obvious implication is that older women must exemplify the virtues in verses 4 and 5. So in addition to the four he's already mentioned, keep writing down another seven of what characterizes healthy doctrine in your life of practice. Because you set the tone You define the curriculum and exemplify what your student is to aspire towards. And as you come alongside the younger to encourage them, that's an interesting term there in verse 4, so that they may encourage the younger women. That term sophronizo denotes teaching in the sense of bringing people to their senses, showing what is sound thinking, Advising them, urging them. It would not go too far, ladies, as you are teaching, to get into a little bit of preaching here to your fellow women, as long as uh, men aren't present here. 
It's got a, an interesting nuance as you're, as you're constantly urging them to apply what you are saying. Can I just insert here, because I didn't know where else to put it in the message. You know, as we think about godly womanhood, on my prayer list, and I hope that it goes on your prayer list, we need more Association of Certified Biblical Counselors in residence at Newtown Bible Church. We need some godly women to pursue what discipleship in practice looks like. Put it on your prayer list. Seven points in their lesson to the younger ladies. A list that clearly represents the apostles' understanding of a young wife, a young mother, and her proper priorities, both in what they be and what they do. Notice he's not challenging them, do this, do that, do the other thing. He's saying, be this and do. Corollary truths. Number one, young lady, love your husbands. The term philandros, phileo, to love, and andros, which here is translated as husband, not just man. Here's what he says to Titus. Here's what you are to instruct the ladies in your midst to be a husband lover. A husband lover. If you are a wife here today, does that one word characterize your life, that you are known as a husband lover? Not of somebody else's, but of your own. You might think, well, why do we need teaching to love husbands and the next one's going to be to love children? Isn't that unnecessary? Isn't that innate that to have children means that I love my offspring? Doesn't that mean to covenant in uh, the commitment of love that I love? No, that doesn't mean it's innate in you. You must be schooled in what love looks like. Because I think that we tend to think, well, we don't need this command to love husbands and love children. But throughout the New Testament, Christians are taught to love God. Does that mean they don't love God? No, but they don't necessarily love Him according to the way He demands and requires to be loved, and so we're schooled on how to love God. We're taught to love our fellow Christians and our neighbors. Sister, who's your closest neighbor? Your bedmate in marriage. Be a lover of your husband. In a time of arranged marriages way back then, 2,000 years ago, and here's, uh, we're going to have a little takeaway, a little application here, but uh, there's such good news here. As Paul teaches Titus to teach his sisters in Christ, in a time of arranged marriages, you can learn to love your husband. You might come to me or Pastor Joey and say, you know what? I've fallen out of love with my mate. Isn't it good, no, good news that when we're instructed in Scripture of what to do, that God enables to do that which He's instructed us to obey? So that love is not merely a feeling that I felt way back then, but it's a commitment, it's a companionship for a lifetime. So he was teaching that it's something that could be learned and cultivated and manifest. That's good news. 
If your love for your spouse is not all God wants it to be. If your love for your children is waning in the times that you live from one paddle to the next, wonder, is there, are they ever going to learn the lesson? I'm pulling my hair out. Pray for it. Learn what love looks like. Beg God that the Spirit of God would produce it. Elicit the prayers of the saints as we would encourage fellow believers in a day that we're pressured to be lovers of our own selves. 2 Timothy 3.2 And as love for self increases, oh, how much we need that reminding to be lovers, biblical lovers. Dear sister in Christ, be a husband lover. We need to take this instruction and include other passages to round out what this looks like. The Apostle will write to the Ephesians. He will write to the Colossians. He will write, uh, Peter will write in his first epistle what love looks like. See, a wife's responsibility is not just to submit, submit, submit. Though there are commands in Scripture to do that, she's commanded to love. That is to say, love does not come naturally. To love your husband and to love your children biblically. Here's the beauty of Scripture. I was studying in this text of Scripture as a father and as a husband, and the Spirit of God convicted me. What, you know, though the command is to them... What kind of lover are you to your spouse and to your tribe of children? Though it is addressed to women, this reality was quite humbling this week. That we would increase in the frequency and the intensity in begging God to teach us, to school us on what it means to love our spouse and our family the way He demands and expects and instructs and empowers us as a believer to love them. Titus, teach these gals to be husband lovers, and second of all, teach them to be children lovers. That same word, phileo, is attached to technon children. Love your children, not in the indulgent manner in which some children many days have become idols in families. Look at it. It's running rampant. not the kind of love Paul was enlisting here where they become your idol. I think it's great to be able to sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ, teach them biblical priority on the home. Many people aren't interested in a family. Going back to that Greek scholar Robertson, so that you can blame him, not me. He said, teaching to be children lovers is still needed where some married women prefer poodle dogs to children. Though that might be an option for a time. I remember when I received my first ultimatum, Parker, I want children or a dog. I got her the dog and that tied her off for a little while. Verse 4, teach these ladies, courage them to love their husbands and to love their children. So he urges young women to be husband lovers and children lovers. Third on your list of healthy living, godliness become manifest. Number three, he says, make sure you are sensible. 
This same term is used up in chapter 1, verse number 8 of elders. He uses it of older men in verse number 2 of chapter 2, and here in verse number 5 of chapter 2, that these ladies be sensible. Three quarters of the New Testament uses of this term are used right here in Titus. That you be thoughtful is another synonym. Moderate, self-controlled, decent, or modest. Fourth, that you be pure. The term here, hagnos, means holy. That you're innocent. And here is the special nuance of the word, chaste. It's got overtones of sexual purity. That you are not a woman that is known for sensuality, but purity. Fifthly, teach them to be workers at home. Notice that. Workers at home. Domestic. Keeping the home. Can I ask a question? You know what an oxymoron is. Uh, I heard this last week up at the conference that I, that I was at on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, a friend of mine was reading a laundry list of, of favorite oxymorons, words that are contradictory realities. I wish I had copied that down. Here's one of my favorites that uh, would apply to this text. Here's an oxymoron, a non-working mother. Is there such a thing? No, there's not. Why are you saying to teach them to be workers at a home? The NEB and the NIV translate this phrase that they be busy at home. I don't necessarily think that is the best translation, and I'll tell you why. I think that worker is the better translation because he is not trying to convey just busyness. You can be a busy homemaker and not a godly homemaker. You can be busy about right things at the wrong time. Busyness does not necessarily mean godly. Think about the Jewish home through the Jewish ears that they would have been listening to this message from Paul. In the Jewish household, a married woman was to grind... Uh, I, I only got this out of my trip to Israel, how hard it was to, to be a housewife back then. You know, nowadays we've got bread machines and uh, front load washers and dryers if they work right and all these other things. But back then, you had to grind your own flour, you had to bake, you had to launder, you had to cook, nurse your children, make the bed, spin your wool, keep your house, and you're responsible for hospitality and all the care of the guests that came to town. Pretty huge list. Maybe your contemporary imagination conjures up that what Paul's saying to the young woman here is that she's chained to the kitchen sink with six children crying at her feet. No, she's got seven crying. No. Uh, rather than thinking of Christianity, or especially Paul as some male chauvinist, recognize the biblically high value of being a worker in the home. Keeping a godly home with excellence for your husband and your children that is the woman's non-negotiable responsibility and privilege. Though some have taught this text that uh, women are not to work outside the home, I think that pushes it a little too far. I don't think that he is forbidding that here, but I think that it's also hard to do and do well. 
I don't think that she's strictly forbidden from working outside the home, but the home and family are her priority. Can you balance them both? Because if you can't balance them both, one's got to go and it's not the home. This is a biblical challenge to distinguish yourselves, dear sister, from the busybodies whose idleness is a curse to herself and her acquaintances. You need to be a diligent homemaker. And we could fill in so many verses as Scripture interprets Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.14 or Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 of what does the excellent wife look like? It's not just efficient management. I think it adds in not only efficiency in our management, but lacking irritability in light of the nagging demands of the mundane and routine household chores. This is not a picture that Paul's got of, of enslavement, but useful enterprise. It is no minor thing when you write on whatever paperwork you're writing on that you are a domestic engineer. That's your identity. That is your privilege. That is your goal. Even if you look at the, the, the day we live in where it, it's hard for you to keep your wife and, and the mother of your children at home. Very difficult. And if circumstances have called you to work outside the home, you're still to maintain the priority of a godly home that God's called you to establish. Bringing grace and beauty to it. Setting a tone of, notice this next word here, that I think helps define and balance off what he's saying it means to be a worker in the home. Number six is that she's kind. Kind. A great addition to the previous grace of being a worker at home. It adds balance to the combination of hardworking but good-natured and considerate. She's to exhibit a gentle benevolence, acting with grace and patience rather than irritability and cruelty. Sometimes that's a hard demand. Who, was, it, uh, was it Susanna Wesley that with all the, the children chattering about would have to pull the, the covers up, the blanket over her head so she could pray that she wouldn't kill her kids in the meantime? Lord, help me to exude gospel grace and kindness in the midst of a hectic life. The mistress of the home is to add her thrift and her energy and strict discipline a uh, a gracious and heartily kind demeanor. Pray for it. And notice number seven in his list. They're sensible, they're pure, they're workers at home, they're kind, and they are subject to their own husbands. One more character, which is just as much an attitude as, as it is an action. Don't, don't think that every one of these characteristics of godliness are in a clear uh, column of be or do. Submissiveness. If you are reading the New King James this morning, it uh, translates that as obedient. The ideas of radical feminism were an integral part of ancient Babylon and Assyrian mythology. 
It was a great part of Greek uh, Gnosticism. So it is not just a contemporary issue. It's not just something of 2015. It was flourishing throughout the Roman Empire during the New Testament times and posed a very real danger to the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul includes it in his list here of what older women are to instruct the young women in. That they exude in contrast to to modern feminism that's not progressive. It's it's an age-old regression ever since the garden. It goes way back to Genesis. It's a product of sin where women are fighting for supremacy and yes, men are wielding a domineering spirit rather than humble service, love, and obedience. You know, the Greek structure here indicates that it is both voluntary submission and continuous submission. It's a, in other words, it's an abiding attitude. It's not something she does on the whim and then lets it go, but it is both voluntary and continuous. This requirement is consistent with the divinely willed order. If, you, if we were to take time, we'd go to passages like Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 or 1 Peter 3. All of Scripture attests to the equality of the sexes, yet role distinction. You know, in an, art, in an article that is out on the, uh, in the foyer that I wrote for uh, for my students in grappling with this issue, here, here's the way the argument typically goes. A lot of people want to jump right to Galatians 3.28 where Paul writes to the churches around the Galatian region and he said that there's neither male nor female nor Scythian nor slave. All of that whole context there is talking about salvation blessing that God brings into the life of His own beloved redeemed ones. And they want to rip that verse out of its historical grammatical context to say, see, there's no difference. Take it right from Paul's pen. It's not what it's teaching there. Scripture attests to equality from cover to cover, but it also addresses distinctive roles. When we think about the issue, the doctrine of submission. It is a basic premise of the Christian life, not just marriage. We are taught in Scripture that uh, we're to be submissive to civil authorities. We are to see that uh, slaves are submissive to their masters or the, the corollary in our day and age, employees to employers. We see that Christians are to submit to Christians. Look at how it's used in the book of Titus. Skip down to verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Stop claiming your rights. Stop uh, whining about how um, aggressive and unruly your boss is and exude the gospel grace of submission. So that you adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on in the next chapter. Chapter 3 and verse 1. 
remind them, uh, Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Just because we don't necessarily care, or I shouldn't use the word care, appreciate some of those that have the rule over us in our nation, nationally or locally, all the policies that get passed, are we manifesting a submissive spirit that stems from the gospel? Scripture teaches equality of the sexes, but role distinction. It specifically indicates male headship in the home and male leadership in the church. Notice again the admonition, the instruction. Teach these young ladies to be subject to their own husbands. Their own husbands. That word own, the the clarification is missing in the uh, RSV and the NIV. It indicates the submission is one of function, not inferiority in the home. Your husband, how's God established your home? The the term, hupotasso, though it is rendered in the New King James as obey, maybe that's not the best English translation, Hupo, meaning under. Tasso, meaning a point or ordering. It's even used in uh, military realms. You willingly or voluntarily, as we said earlier, and continuously arrange yourself under both in attitude and action to the role distinctions God has already put into the created order. Equality does not negate distinctiveness. God created male and female, each sex having distinctive features physically, emotionally, relationally. One helpful commentator this week, John Kitchen in his commentary, said, said, obedience is only reasonable when the honor of God is my highest goal. You know, when you are seeking to arrange yourself Underneath even an unruly husband, you do so under God, expecting that He is going to bless your obedience. Authority and submission in the home was a hard sell then, and it continues to be a hard sell today. But Paul gives the spiritual motive before he ends this little discussion. He said, ladies, the older, make sure you are instructing the younger to be husband lovers, children lovers, sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, and subject to their own husbands. And here's the rationale that he appeals to, here and elsewhere, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. That the Word of God… Here's the spiritual motive. Though every unbeliever is going to bear his own load as to why he rejected Christ… In the judgment, he's going to account for his own responsibility. What part do you and I play? Credible witness. For a person to be convinced that God can save people from their sin, they need to see somebody who's living out a holy life. 
Turn to a similar context, back to uh, Romans 2, where the same motive is appealed to. Back in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 2, and notice the tenor of what he's saying here, verse 24. Actually, actually, to gain the context of what he's saying, you've got to see it from verse 23 as well. He says, he's speaking to the Jews, you boast in the law through your breaking the law. You, know, you notice what, the, uh, uh, what he's arguing here? He says, here you are claiming to be servants of Yahweh, the only true God, to be His people, and yet you disobey what He tells you. He says, you boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And notice the crux of the matter in verse 24, the motive. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You claim to serve God, and yet you disobey God. It undoes your witness. This is one of three times that, uh, uh, going back to Titus 2, this is one of three times that uh, in this little epistle, Paul will appeal to this motive. Many have mocked God and God's truth because of the sinful behavior of those who claim to be Christians. Jesus, in setting forth before His disciples what our witness is to be in the world, He says, let your light so shine. Matthew chapter 5. Let your light, let light so shine before men that when they see your good works, what do they do? What's their response? They glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16. Peter looks at it from a different lens. In 1 Peter 2.9, here is our obligation, here is our privilege as the redeemed. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's our privilege. Disobedience was clearly an issue on Crete. The God-given order of authority within marriage and the home life was confused and compromised. So the incumbent change in behavior that was consistent with God's natural order as image bearers of God, and especially among the redeemed, they were to be contrasting with the cultural norms, especially in marriage and the family. And this is not just an issue with disobedient women. You know, the, the unbelievers scoff at the message many times by Christians that they see acting just like them. And I just learned of a brother who has an unbelieving spouse and unbelieving children and was openly engaging in blatant sin. What that do to his credibility, his testimony as one who professes Christ, totally negated it. He was not adorning God's saving grace. So it's not just a problem that uh, Christian women have. The Word of God and the Gospel of Christ are pure. They're excellent. They are glorious in themselves. And their excellencies, as Peter puts it, must be expressed and shown in our lives and in the conduct if we profess His great salvation. As you work it out in daily life, on the market, in the marketplace, and in the home, and in church life. You know, the world usually judges 
religion, not because of its doctrine. When's the last time you engaged with an unbeliever about the hypostatic union? You probably didn't. They don't give a rip about our doctrine, but in its effects upon its, those who profess it. Paul's basic lesson here to godly women The gospel ought to make a woman a better wife and a better mother. And if you are here single, it ought to make you a pure servant of the Most High God. That unbelievers not mock your message. So believer, how credible is your life around your neighbors? Maybe if it ever warms up around here and we actually can stop stoking the wood stove and you open your windows up, are they going to hear you Screaming in fleshly anger and dominance and arguments with the kids and the spouse and everything else. And as you engage in the market, in your place of employment, what about your coworkers? So not only unbelievers in your family, but unbelievers in the place of work. What about the next family reunion? How are you going to adorn the gospel? Four of seven virtues for young women relate to marriage in the home here. Probably so because that's where the vast majority of their activity was. Solid testimony of the church is expanded exponentially by its individual parts of godly homes. Though men are to be leaders of their wives and their children, there's no substitute for the effect that a godly woman brings into the marriage and into the family. Notice that this is dramatic in their day. Back in chapter 1 and verse 11, he says about the false teachers and their adherents that they need to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Verse 14, stop paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So he gives, in contrast to that, God's portrait of what a spiritual, healthy church and spiritually healthy home looks like. Christians are to exceed the ethical and moral standards of the surrounding society. The call on our lives comes not from the neighborhood or the nation, the mores of consensus, but the nature and person of our triune God whom we seek to bear His image. I would submit to you as we go to the Lord in prayer, what needs to be on the prayer list of Newtown Bible Church is a Titus 2 mindset among the ladies. Would you pray with me? Our God, what a marvelous portrait of grace we have on the pages of Scripture. A marvelous portrait for men and for women who profess to know You as their Savior, who are among the redeemed, Lord, would you be so pleased for the praise and the fame of your own name to raise up more godly leadership, more godly women. We praise you for your instruction in Scripture. Now employ us through your Spirit in the application and the putting on of godly graces and the putting off of anything that would be a travesty to those that would profess Christ. Do your work as only your Spirit can do through the Word. We commit our lives afresh to you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus.
who released us of our sin that we might be slaves of righteousness. We pray in His name. Amen.